we're uh, kicking off a new series. It was technically kicked off last week um, by Dave. It's a, called A Day in the Life. And uh, we're just looking at different biblical characters. Dave was going to be preaching on the Holy Spirit one way or the other. And he said, ah, why don't we just tie this into to your series and make it a day in the life of the Holy Spirit. I heard that it was a lot of fun with Dave with all his science experiments and uh, popping corks and hitting the roof with corks and stuff like that last week. I'm sad I missed it. Although I did see some cool pictures of it and even a video of some stuff. So, um, But uh, today we're going to start uh, looking at characters in the New Testament and eventually Old Testament too, characters. That most of them are going to be lesser known characters um, that we're looking at. Some of these names we're not going to get to. The ones all the way on the right here, we're probably not going to get to. They're, they're famous names. But the ones on the left um, are ones that we're probably going to hit first. And um, our hope is just to look at the characters in the scriptures who we might not spend as much time looking at, specifically understanding that this story that we're reading in the scriptures, it's the whole thing's the story of God, and yet it spends most of its time talking about people. Because there's something that God reveals of himself when he talks about people. And so we want to dig in and understand these people a little bit more, not just so that we can relate to them, but so that we can more fully understand God in his story through the pages of scripture. So that's what we're going to do. And today we're starting off with Thomas. And uh, we know of Thomas, you know, he's not the most famous uh, of the apostles, um, but we know about Thomas. Now, Thomas, um, well, uh, he has two nicknames, okay? His first nickname is the one that all the apostles gave him, and that's twin. They called him twin. We don't know anything about his twin. We don't even know if he actually was a twin, because sometimes you get nicknames about something you're not right? So uh, he, it could have been that he just looked like one of the other guys, and so they called him twin. I don't know, but they call him twin. Um, and, but we all call him something else. What do we call him? Thomas the Doubter, tough nickname for a man of faith, you know? And uh, so that's his nickname. Is that legit? Uh, you know, uh, is that a bad rap for a guy who eventually, you know, church history writes down that Thomas is one of the most effective evangelists in all of church history, that, uh, that a huge chunk of Asia was uh, populated with Christian faith because of the work of Thomas. And so Doubter is a tough nickname for a guy like that to end up with, you know. Uh, was it legit that he struggled with doubt? Well, you know, one thing I think that's important to recognize about Thomas is that clearly from the, from the scriptural pictures that we do get of Thomas, which are really limited, we're going to look, in the next few minutes, we're going to look at all the scriptural pictures about Thomas, and it's not going to take us long, you know, because there's only three moments where um, Thomas is separated from the rest and highlighted in the story. Um, and they're all really found in uh, the Gospel of John. By the way, John is perfect at character studies. He loves to do this. Uh, his descriptions of Peter inform almost everything we know about Peter because I think he loved to pick on Peter. And so he loves to like show in the text like how Peter struggled. But same thing with Thomas. If you want to get the dirt on anyone, go to the Gospel of John and it tells you all the dirt on people. But it's because he shows the character of Jesus in relation to those people. Um, and so he, he uh, shows... Thomas, and in these few interactions with Thomas that we see, one thing we really start to get a clear picture of about Thomas is that he is just an extremely practical person, like boots firmly planted on the ground. He's like, just spell it out for me. Tell me how it is. I want to know what it is. And sometimes that can be translated as doubt, and maybe it is. 
But sometimes it's also the person who's asking the practical question that either no one else is asking or no one else has the guts to ask. And I kind of feel like Thomas is the guy who's like, okay, maybe, whatever. So what's this mean? You know, let's break this down. What's this mean? And there are some of us in a community who tend to be the more practically minded people. And that is not always doubt, you know? And it certainly doesn't mean that practically minded people who aren't thinking uh, firstly spiritual with great vision and faith, it does not mean that those people don't have faith. And it certainly doesn't mean that they're not being faithfully obedient to God. Thomas seems to be a guy that is every bit as obedient as just about anyone else in the scripture. He's an obedient guy. Um, But when it comes to his uh, heart, like being there and his brain just like on the same wavelength as Jesus, no, he's real boots on the ground kind of guy, you know, down to earth. And uh, one of the things that is difficult, uh, clearly, for a person like this, and particularly for Thomas, is that it's not that he can't trust um, the, the principles that God puts out there and trying to walk faithfully in those principles. The problem for Thomas is to believe in the supernatural power of God and that his intention toward his people in the moment. So if if Jesus says, Thomas, I want you to go do this. I know you won't understand, but I want, you, I want you to go do it. Thomas is like, faithful guy. All right, I'll do it. But if he's like, Thomas, this is what's going to happen. It's going to be awesome. Thomas is like, yeah, we'll see. You know? And some of us, that's just naturally our personality. You know? um, and so faithful obedience, thumbs up. Great work, you know, when it comes to like actually being able to envision what it is that Jesus is talking about, very difficult for Thomas. And for some, it's more difficult than it is for others. Now, when it comes to that, is that doubt? Well, maybe, perhaps, probably, to some degree, at some points it is. But it's really important also to know that in a community of faith, that we need those who think practically. That we need those who just are thinking about the basics, about the detail. Now, that has to be submitted to the broader picture of faith. We are not just a business or an organization. In the community of faith, we are a family of faith who believe in a God who does not submit himself to the laws of physics, who does not submit himself to what it is that we see with our eyes or hear with our ears or that our brains can understand. He defies our senses because he's much bigger than our senses. So we can't know and fully comprehend God if we are stuck just within the practical. However, if we believe and follow God much bigger than our senses, sometimes there's a problem, right? And the problem is we can be way out there and be like, man, God is amazing. We should go do this and go do that. But there's some very practical things that we're missing. And those practical things, sometimes God doesn't tell us to just go missing on those things. So this is the way it works. In a community of faith, we need to hear the voice of reason. We need to hear the voice of human logic. But it also needs to be understood in the context of faith. And if our questions that we have are submitted in the context of faith, then it's really important because what that does is, is it takes all the difficulties about faith and it puts them in front of us and it says, if God can do it, he can do it in spite all of that, right? And that makes it even more amazing. So let's not just say, okay, well, we should just do what God says without looking at the budget. No, we say, let's look at the budget, and we don't have the money to do that, but if God says to do it, then we'll do it, even though we know full well what that means with the budget. 
right? So we don't just put our blinders on and be like, I'm not looking, I'm not looking. This is too scary. Like someone who's about to go on a roller coaster ride but can't look. What we do is we count the cost, right? And if you're going to build a tower, you count the cost. We say, it's going to cost this much. We don't have the money for it, but God said to do it. So we got to do it. And so that, that Thomas personality is a very helpful personality if it's submitted in the context and under this, in, in submission to a community of faith. All right, so uh, that's Thomas. That's who he is. Now we're going to look at this. We're going to bring this out um, a little bit more in a minute here um, through, the, through the text. Um, I think there's one thing that's really important is that we understand that doubt, at its very core, doubt, isn't sin. Unbelief is sin. So when we choose not to believe, we are sinning. Doubt is that it can, can be an emotion where we're looking at things or it can be like, it's not all being put together. I don't know and I have a feeling this isn't working out. The initial, that initial thought is not sin. That initial feeling is not sin. Acting upon that becomes disbelief. We're living out of that posture becomes disbelief. Now, if there is no place for doubt, then what is faith? Because isn't faith choosing to believe when it doesn't make sense to us? And so we kind of understand that in any given situation, I don't get this. I kind of doubt that it works out, but God's calling me beyond my doubt into faith. And so doubt's the very context in which faith is birthed. And uh, Frederick Buechner, awesome author. If you've never read Frederick Buechner, great author. He has this book called The ABCs of Grace, um, or the Alphabet of Grace, maybe The Alphabet of Grace. And awesome book. In the middle of that, he talks about how uh, grace is foundational, or uh, that, um, that doubt is foundational to both faith and grace, that we understand in the context of doubt is where God's grace comes and gives us faith. But he says this, this great quote, he says, if there's no room for doubt, then there's definitely no room for me. And I think that's true of all of us if we get really honest with ourselves. If we say we only exist inside of a relationship with God, outside of doubt, no, it's in the very context of our doubt, of our struggle, where Jesus has said stuff, but we have a hard time receiving it. It's in that moment where we have the common prayer. And that you know the common prayer, Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief, right? Which one of us can't sign on to that? And if there's no room for that, then there's no room for us as people who are struggling to to grow in faith. And uh, so I think that probably all of us have been stuck in a place at times in our life where we knew something to be theologically true, where I'm like, I know that's true, but I'm having a hard time getting myself there right now. Do you know what I mean? Where like, I know it here, but I can't like, get myself there. I'm like having a hard time just living. Uh, I was talking, I had a conversation with the boys yesterday about this whole topic of faith because it gives a great opportunity to talk with the family when uh, I'm prepping for this stuff and to talk with the boys. So I I said, is it difficult sometimes? Is it, I I was asking, is it difficult to have faith? And uh, Evan said, sometimes it's, it's more difficult than other things. And I'm like, give me an example. And he said, well, if you told me that the Patriots won, I'd be like, yeah, of course they did. But if you told me the Buccaneers won, he's like, I'd want to see the highlights, you know? And I was like, well, that's pretty good, you know? And uh, in the context of talking about uh, faith and talking about Thomas, this is kind of where we are. And there's this tension for us where when we're, when we believe in something, okay, I get that. That's possible. It's there. But I really want to confirm that in the ways that I'm used to confirming things, which means actually what? It means 
that my senses are is uh, my senses are more reliable than God's words. That's where the danger is. That my senses are more reliable to me than God's words are. Right? And now if it's about the Buccaneers, God didn't say they won. I mean, Dad did. But can you know it, but if I say they won and, and we still say, I don't know, I need to see the highlights. Well, that's not trusting me. And when God says something, but we don't hear him and we don't trust him until we see it or until we touch it or until we experience it, then that's a problem internally over the fact that we don't trust God's word to the extent that we need to. So I want us to ask a question before we pick apart these, uh, these uh, few stories here. And that's this. What would look different about your life if you had more faith? If you just, if all of a sudden God just right now dumped the truck of faith on you, what are the things that are like theologically you're like, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. Now it's not like we know that there's some things that we want that we think faith could get us that God never promised, you know? So whatever that thing is, and I'm like, man, I really want that. And if I had more faith, that might work. Well, God might not have ever said that he was going to do that. But there are things that we can believe in that God has said that his word is revealed, that if we believed more fully, it would change things about our life. And I would imagine that for each of us, one of the things that would change most drastically is our attitude, our outlook. Yesterday, um, my boys were playing in a, in a soccer tournament out in Hershey, Harrisburg, out in that way. It's a huge soccer tournament, and it was dumping rain. It was a great family moment. We're sitting there just getting soaked together. And Colton's team, had, uh, they had had a rough first game, and they have had a rough, they had, it's been a difficult season for them. They come into the, the second game, and the kids are just having a very difficult time being focused. They get out on the field. They're kind of putzing around. They're not really, like, playing hard. And we're like, you know, the coaches are on the side. I'm like, come on. Well, one of the kids puts one in the back of the net. About a minute later, he makes a great move and puts another one in the back of the net, and they're up 2 nothing. All of a sudden, it was a completely different team. They played with a fire in their bellies. Score ended up, what was the score, like 7-1 to one or something like that? It was the first game they won all season, and they destroyed these guys, you know? And what happened was is something clicked after the first two goals where they started to believe that they could win. And as soon as they did, it changed their whole outlook and their whole attitude. And they thought, this is possible. We could actually do this. And once they believed that, they started playing with fire and they're winning the 50-50 balls. They're doing everything. They're playing hard D. And, they're, and they're, it was awesome watching them go after it. And we were, the other coach and I were looking at each other. We're like, is this the same team? You know? And it, it was all because their attitude shifted because of what they thought was possible. And I have a feeling that for many of us as Christians, what ends up happening is there's this subtle doubt that starts to creep in that eventually moves into a place of unbelief. And we don't even identify it as unbelief because theologically we still think that things are possible. But in our life, we think we live in the real world and we're checked by the real world, by our experiences and by the difficulties that have hit us. But underneath of that is a God who hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his word hasn't changed, and his word never returns void. And the only thing that changes is my heart and my mind. I'm just going to wait until I get the amen on that one. Okay, all right, thank you. So when I ask us what might be different, I think we need to take inventory in our lives. 
I said, what would it look like if I got hooked up to the faith IV and he just infused me with faith right now? How would my outlook be different? And how would that affect my family and the community that I exist in more? Because when we doubt or when we have unbelief, it's not just that it affects me, it's that it affects everyone around me. Because we exist in a community of faith. And when one person rises up in faith and the others are like, go for it, man. We'll sit back and watch. And hopefully you make it. And if you do, you were the one who took the risk. And we can all celebrate and be a part of that. But you're out there on your own. Because we don't want to take the risk to go with you. Because faith is always a risk. But it's always a lot less of a risk than we actually think it is. It looks like a huge risk, but in the end, it's really not that big of a risk for two reasons. Usually what can be lost is only a little bit of pain. And secondarily, God's always faithful, so he always comes through. It's a sure bet. Okay, Thomas. Let's turn to John 11, verses 5. Starting in verses 5, and I'm going to pray about just these couple texts because we only have a little bit of time left here and I just want to pray that God would illuminate these texts. God, show us right here um, in your word this picture of Thomas. Help us to be able to understand him the way that you want us to understand him in the word. Help us more than that to understand you the way you want us to understand you in the word. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so John 11, starting in verse 5. Uh, This is the first time, the only time that Thomas has really been mentioned prior to this is in the scripture is when it says Jesus named his 12 disciples and Thomas was a name there. But we don't know anything about him other than he was one of the 12. Now, this is the first time. Uh, And uh, verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay, and what's going on? This is the death of Lazarus. Um, and the resurrection. So that's the context. So, verse 6, when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place he was. It says, he loved Martha, and he loved Mary, and he loved Lazarus. So since he heard that he was sick, he stayed put. Isn't that interesting? Because he loved them, he stayed put when he was sick. Sometimes we assume that the most important thing to do is if someone's in pain, you got to be there right away. This defies that, okay? I just want to be clear about that, that there are times in our life when just running to someone's side in the midst of their pain is not necessarily the first thing we need to do. The first thing we need to do is go into prayer and ask the Lord what we do, okay? First thing is we take them to the Lord. Secondly, we say, what do you want me to do in response to that, you know? And so when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, What's the logic behind why to stay two days longer? Well, there's a couple different theories around that. One is so that he could make a display about what it is that, you know, about the resurrection of Lazarus. But there's another one, and you'll see what that is. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Now, Jesus, in the, in the passage right before this, had just left the Jerusalem area because they were trying to kill him. So now it's like a hotbed of people who are hating Jesus and his disciples. And he leaves in order to get out of the situation. Now, Lazarus gets sick, and he's like, 
We're going to go back down there. And the guys are like, you got to be kidding me. This is sure death. There's no way that we're going to escape this. And it may be that Jesus waited two extra days because he needed to let things cool down a little bit. It may be that Jesus can wait two extra days because he knows he can heal him. Sometimes we do the thing immediately because that's the resources we have. If I don't get down there right now, Lazarus is going to die. Maybe God's saying, don't go down there right now. Don't do it. It's not a good situation. Wait two days. I can't wait till two days. He'll die. Yeah, well, I'll raise him from the dead. You know, sometimes the limitations of our decision-making are not submitted to God because we don't believe in an all-powerful God. And so we think we know what we should do immediately because in our human logic, it just makes sense. So if I'm going to be loving, then the most important thing to do is go down there, right? Hmm? Maybe not. Maybe not. Most important thing is to ask God. Jesus answered, are there not 12? I love this answer. Man, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What's he saying? What's Jesus talking about? How do you know if you're going to stumble or not? He's like, you guys are worried about me going down there and getting killed. Here's the deal. Walk in the light. You know how you walk in the light? You stay obedient to dad. You stay obedient to dad. There's 12 hours in the day. When he tells me to work, I work. When he tells me to sleep, I sleep. When you walk in the day following God, doing what you're supposed to, you don't stumble. You stay on the path. That's the safest place to be. Don't worry about what this says or what these people are doing. Worry about what God's doing and stick with him, right? Okay, so he keeps going. The disciples said to him, Lord, oh, oh, he says, uh, verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, uh, you just, Jesus is awesome this way, Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. So, of course, he's saying something metaphorical because he's actually died, but since he's about to raise him from the dead, he's like, ah, we can just treat death like it's sleep, right? But the disciples aren't there, they don't get it, so the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Like, why are we putting our lives on the line here? Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad, wow, that I was not there so that you may believe. The whole context of this story now takes a new meaning. Whether he waited the two days so that he could raise him or whether he could wait two days because he could raise him, we're not told. What we are told is this, that he's happy right now that the disciples are all confused and in a mess and don't think this can work out because now their faith is about to rise. And he wants very much for their faith to rise. That's the situation. So Thomas, (laughs) here we go called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, this is why I wanted to preach this message, this phrase right here. Let us also go that we may die with him. That should cause laughter in all of us. I don't know about you, but like Thomas, like that response, let us also go that we may die with him. I mean, like the amount of obedience, like we're going with you to die, you know? Like, so he has definitely enough faith to follow him into a very, very dangerous situation. 
willing to die with him, but not enough faith and not enough imagination to see any outcome other than certain death. Faith manifests in a few different ways. There's the theological, there's the creed, there's the I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. There's that kind of faith where I can make a doctrinal statement and say, I'm a Christian, I believe these things. That's the most simple, basic kind of faith that sets up a framework, a paradigm, a worldview, and I say, I believe those things. There's a second level of faith, and that second level of faith actually leads to action where I believe that enough that I'm going to do the right thing. And that's where, when we read Hebrews 11 today in Sunday school, it talked about all these people who by faith did what God had called them to do. They walked in that faith. There's a third level of faith that's much deeper than both of those things. And it's the kind of faith that changes how you act all over the place. Not just actions that you take in obedience, but the way you see the world. And deeper than that, even the way you feel about a difficult situation. When Paul says, I've learned the, cir- I've learned the secret to what it means to be content in every circumstance. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding, will guard your and your in Christ Jesus. The greatest kind of faith doesn't just know how to make the right statements about theology. It doesn't even just get us to do the right kinds of things that the Scripture calls us to. It's the kind that in a difficult situation or in a great situation gives us massive emotional and mental stability to be able to handle all of life's storms, not like a ship being tossed to and fro, but instead we hold on to the reality of the fact that God is with us. God is here and he earnestly desires to bless those who seek him. And when we believe that, it changes the way we feel. So Thomas has the kind of faith that says, I believe Jesus is the one. And he has the kind of faith that even says, all right, this is going to kill us, but let's go. But you also get underneath of that kind of this sense of like despair or like woe is us, you know, underneath of it. And sometimes faith only gets us that far. And that is not the abundant life. That's not the abundant life. That's the obedient life, but not the abundant life. Do you know that you can be obedient, that we can be obedient without being abundant? That we can do the right stuff for the right reasons and still not flourish, still not feel alive the way we were called to feel alive? And that's because there's a deeper level of faith about God's presence and God's heart toward us that's really important for us to embrace. Okay, and uh, it's illustrated even more as you look at the, more sto- the, the other stories. I said we were going to get to all three of these, and we are not going to get to all three of them. Um, but I, I will say, in, a, in my conversation uh, with the boys uh, yesterday, another like, really fun soundbite is I, I said to them, what would be different about your life if you had more faith? And Colton said to me, he said, life would be more fun. And I was like, more fun? Why is that? And he's like, because Jesus is definitely the most fun, you know? 
And I think it was true. I mean, one of the things that's cool about Thomas and this statement is that it's a prophetic statement. I mean, he says, let us go and die with him. And the life of Jesus is the life of the cross. It's the way of suffering. It's a road marked with suffering. There's no question about it. And yet in the midst of that suffering, the whole thing about the death and resurrection of Jesus is it says, death, where is your sting? Grave, you have no victory. Throw your best shot and I can still stand in the joy of the Lord. Because where the presence of the Lord is, there's freedom and there's life and there's the abundance. He's come that we may have life and we may have it to the full. And we may have abundance. So here's the easy way, the broad way, with all the worldly pleasures. But over here's the difficult way, marked with suffering. And yet this is the abundant way, the, the way that has deep, rich life. And I think Colton actually was kind of right. It's the fun way. I don't know about you, but when I'm walking with the Lord, even though things are difficult and we ought to sacrifice things and all that, that's when you're alive. It's when you're alive and life's good, you know? And I think that what's going on with Thomas is he's kind of like halfway there, you know? He believes and he's doing the right thing, but it doesn't quite feel like he's got it, got it all there. And I, I think it's important that we don't sit there and overanalyze faith too much too. I mean, the point isn't to justify how much faith do I have, because that'll just madden you. How much did Thomas have? How much didn't he have? The, the main thing is that in the midst of our lack of faith, in the midst of our doubts, God is so faithful. And Jesus will win every time. And the more we just stay with him, and Thomas followed him, you know, he followed him. And when he did, his faith grew. So if all you got is enough to just be obedient, be obedient. If all you got right now is enough to say, I believe it in a creed, well, say it over and over again until you believe it enough to do the right thing. And do the right thing enough until you can change the way you feel because you've experienced God's presence in your life. Right? So I'm just going to talk you through. We're not going to read the other ones. I'm just going to tell you what they are. Um, there's this great moment, and it's in the upper room. It's after they just had communion for the first time, and Jesus just instituted the new covenant. And he says, all right, well, it's coming. I'm leaving, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And uh, where I go, um, you're going to follow, and you know the way. And Thomas steps out, and he says, how in the world can we know the way if we don't know where you're going? Practically minded guy. He's like, Jesus, I get it. You're going and doing something awesome. I never know what you're doing, but at least give us directions. I need directions. Like spell it out. Where do I turn right? Where do I turn left? And I love the fact that Thomas actually asked that question for so many reasons. But one of the greatest is because the statement that Jesus says after this is a statement that we have held on to over and over again and would not be in the text if Thomas hadn't been honest and said, how do we know if we don't know the way? And Jesus says, Thomas, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except by me. Can you imagine if we didn't have that statement and we don't have that statement? And we have that statement because Thomas got honest about where he was. And Thomas should have been able to have more faith, should have been able to have more faith, but he didn't. And his humility was, I'm not just going to sit here and act like I got it together. I'm going to be honest with God and say, I don't get it. What's the way? And Jesus says, oh, I got you. Just stick with me. Stick with me. And that's what it says. Stick with me. We have all sorts of theological statements about I am the way, the truth, and the life, and they're all probably legit. I mean, it's amazing how much is in that statement. But the most important thing in that statement is one thing, is he's saying, stick with me, kid. Just stay with me. 
and we got this. Amazing moment. Amazing, amazing moment. And, uh, and then, of course, um, there's the moment everyone is very aware of with Thomas and where he gets his biggest bad rap. And that's when Jesus shows up in probably the same upper room a couple days later, just a couple days later, two days later, and Thomas isn't there. And uh, it's really hard for me to say this without being emotional, but like, I don't know why Thomas wasn't there, but I guarantee you it had something to do with his doubt and his hurt and his pain. I can almost guarantee it. Like there's a reason why he was not in that upper room. And he was not gathered in the family of faith in brokenness and hurt. You know, my guess is Thomas was like, I told you guys. Like, I've been telling you all along, there's a lot of hype here. There's a lot of vision. There's a lot of all this. But at the end of the day, it never quite works out. They always end up hanging on a cross. I'm done. I'm done. They come to him and say, we saw Jesus. That's what they say. With their own physical eyes, they come back and say, we saw Jesus. And he says, in no uncertain terms, unless I touch his hands and touch his side, I will not believe. That is the heart. When it is hurt, and when it is scared, and when it is defiant, because it will not allow itself to receive the reality that God's words never return void. And if we're going to bet on something in our life, it better be the words of God. And there is a temptation that creeps into each one of our hearts and each one of our minds to subtly draw back from confidence in God's words. And the enemy wants desperately to erode our confidence, to erode our hearts of joy and peace and faith, to erode our minds of peace and ease and contentment. And he wants to place seeds of doubt. Like when he comes to Eve and he says, are you sure you're not allowed to eat from that tree? Because, of course, she wasn't the one who heard it from God. Adam was. And Thomas wasn't the one who saw Jesus. The disciples were, the rest of them. But he couldn't believe. Couldn't believe. And, of course, the most amazing thing about the story of Thomas is that it's not the story of Thomas. It's in the Gospel of John. It's a gospel about Jesus. And Thomas is just one character in the story of Jesus. And if it was just a story of Thomas, we'd be in bad shape. But instead, it's the story of Jesus. So what happens is, is a few days later, maybe a month later, he's in the same upper room again. But this time, he's gathered together in one accord with all the disciples, and they are praying in faith, waiting, obedient, prayerful, anticipating, and boom, Jesus returns in the form of the Holy Spirit and tongues of fire on their heads. And they are given prayer power and they move and he ends up going and evangelizing the world. Because it's not about how much faith he has. It's about how awesome God is. And God has him on a journey where he grows his faith. But I do want to remind us that that journey of faith that we're on happens best in context of community. And when Thomas was not in the room, he missed it. When Thomas was in the room praying with everyone else, he got it. So show up at prayer Tuesday. Let's pray.
Father God, I thank you and I praise you and I love you. Um, we as a community of faith struggle. We struggle, God. Man, do we struggle. I struggle so much. I struggle, struggle, struggle at times when it's like the circumstances say this, the heart and the mind say this, and there's been that much pain, and we don't want to put it out there again because it yada, 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 yada. God, raise up among us faith, belief, your response to, <laughs> your response to Thomas, the same response to us. After you say, touch my side, touch my hands, you say, now you have seen. Do not disbelieve but believe. Blessed are those who do not see and yet still believe. Raise up faith, God. Raise up faith. We are broken doubters. We struggle. It is not based on us. We can't just amp it up, God. Raise up faith. Swell faith among us. Grow faith among us. Make us a community of faith. God, may our prayer and our faith and our encouragement move more and more as we see the day approaching and encouraging one another toward faith as we see the day approaching. It is approaching. There is no human way possible to untangle the sin and the mess that we are in. It is a great environment, Jesus, for you to raise up faith among us and to bring us to our knees. Please do it in your name, in your name, in your name. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.